This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, in our first episode of Year 4, we explore our first ever tiebreaker episode as we settle the score between three of Dad's favorite movies, Apollo 13 from 1995, directed by Ron Howard, written by William Broyles Jr., starring Tom Hanks, Gary Sinise, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton, and Ed Harris, Blazing Saddles from 1974, written and directed by Mel Brooks, starring Cleavon Little, Gene Wilder, Slim Pickens, Alex Karras, Harvey Korman, and Madeline Kahn, and also from 1974, Young Frankenstein, written and directed by Mel Brooks, written by and starring Gene Wilder, with Peter Boyle, Terry Garr, Cloris Leachman, Marty Feldman, and Madeline Kahn. First off, welcome to year four. At this point next year, we will have spent more time doing this show than the length of the Trump administration. Ooh, it just seemed longer for the Trump administration. Well, that's because you had the entire campaign, and that was like a year and a half, and then there was like the fallout from the whole January 6th thing. So it was really closer to like six years of Trump, and we're still not out from under his like weird shadow, but the actual administration, the time limit of things where he could do demonstrably terrible things to the country and the world was only shorter than what our potential show could be this time next year. Mm, okay. It seems to have gone by quickly. Also, it would be longer than the presidential administrations of Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan. Not to mention William Henry Harrison. Well, we already have him beat. We had him beat about the time we did Groundhog Day. Chester Arthur? No, we're... I don't know if we're quite longer than Chester Arthur at this point. Oh, yeah, because Chester Arthur took over for Garfield, and Garfield lasted about nine months. So we're longer than James Garfield, but we will be longer than Chester Arthur. But I don't think we've gotten to that point quite yet, because he took over early in that term. I know, everybody is just clamoring to hear us debating presidential history of the Gilded Age. Yep. Nothing says movies like The Gilded Age. So what are your expectations for season four? Well, you've laid out a broad arrangement of films. There are several on there I'm looking forward to doing. There are a few on there that I'm going to be a little cringy about, but I will continue to push myself to try to watch things that are outside of my comfort zone. You don't mean Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, do you? (sighs) Exactly. (laughs) When that came out, I went like, what is that? And I had no interest in seeing it. At the very least, I can announce that I'm thinking seriously about a Tim Burton film for our uh, annual uh, Oscars bet. Okay, you had suggested a Joel Schumacher film the last time oh, I saw you. Oh, I'm sorry. You. It was, yes, you're right. Joel Schumacher did the bat nipples. Yes. Yes, he did. So when was the last time you took a look at our grand list? Uh, today, as a matter of fact. I wondered if that was you. I get notifications anytime somebody looks at the website, and it said Port Edwards, so I'm like, is Dad logging in from home? No, he'd probably be logging in from the office. I was logging in from the office. So I don't know why it said Port Edwards unless... That must be your IP address when uh, you go remotely through your server or whatever. So there are currently 140 total movies on the list. We have covered 145 episodes to this point. 140 movies in those 145 episodes. Five revisits so far. Of the bottom 10, are there any that surprise you? Not really. I think the thing that to some extent surprised me when I was looking through the list again is how I actually agree with what the list is. I'm going, 
you know, I, I I don't review the list very often because I try to come at it with as clean a perspective as I can because I don't want to sit and go, well, this should be a little better than this film or that film. So, no, there aren't any real surprises. Our bottom film, other than your bet loss, is still the greatest show on earth, correct? Correct, at 26 overall points. And uh, it should be. Well, and we have last year's episode for victory, which will come up later in the episode in a more unfortunate circumstance. But I I very much regret having covered that film. The Quiet (laughs) Man is not something that I was enamored with, although I think it has its fans. I'm surprised that you're not more appreciative for A Bridge Too Far being in the bottom 10. I can understand as far as a film and being a great film, it may be a little on the low side as far as ranking, but I don't see where it would be considered a great film. There isn't like overwhelming acting performances. The editing at time is a little uh, slow. Uh, The direction is kind of convoluted at times. The script kind of doesn't make sense at certain points. It's more of a historical atmosphere or a, more of a historical film to me that I enjoy because of the history of it more than the actual film itself. So I don't have a big problem. I think it might be a little low, but I'm not going to complain about it. The two that I guess would stand out a bit for me are Cool Hand Luke, just because you and I are both Paul Newman fans, and that's probably his most famous individual role. And then Zodiac, the David Fincher true crime thriller noir. I think that has more of an influence of who the guest was that particular week. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think as we get a few more films in here and maybe some surprises, those will kind of come out of that bottom 10. I just don't see either of them moving up high enough to get back inside the top 100 if we were to ever revisit either of those. Possibly Cool Hand Luke, but... Really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little puzzled sometimes as to why that's such a popular film, because I didn't find it that entertaining. There are individual moments and scenes in there, and I think both of those films are rewatchable for stretches, but they are a little bit longer than they needed to be. I think both of them could have used a little bit of editing, and I think that unfortunately undoes it a little bit, but the... I don't know, maybe we'll just save that for a revisit, but I I don't remember either of them being seared into my memory as like grand mistakes that they are where they are. Yeah. And in fact, we are doing a revisit episode next week of a film that is outside the top 100 for Inglorious Bastards, which would be, I think, the first movie that we covered once we went into lockdown. Yes. That's how long ago we're talking. So let's discuss the three films that you've said you could not pick between. I guess you can take them collectively or individually or however you would like. But why are these three movies so important to you? Well, first of all, they just strike a chord with me. I I always love comedies in general because to me, I love an opportunity to laugh. I have very serious profession and a very serious life. So I try to look for things that I enjoy. And I loved comedy since I was a kid. I used to watch Laugh It and the Dean Martin roasts, all of this stuff. So I've had a real strong relationship to comedy in general. And I've really enjoyed comedy. And I specifically have always enjoyed the comedy of Mel Brooks and his ability to parody situations and concepts themes so young frankensteins and blazing saddles have been two of my go-to films in fact the first film i ever picked out for your mother to watch when we were dating was i picked out young frankenstein for her and her parents because they kept bringing films or she brought a film home that oh it looked good when i read the box and uh, I said, no, 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 this is garbage. Get young Frankenstein. And so it was a hit. Apollo 13, it's history. 
it's overcoming odds, it's heroism, it's self-sacrifice. Those are common themes that I always enjoy in films, and when I see those in a film, they tend to resonate with me and make it to my Valhalla, my point of meeting ground. Where, And so that's why Apollo 13 strikes with me anyway. So those are three of my favorites. I couldn't give you a number one. Hold on. Did you say meeting ground? Yes. Did you mean happy hunting ground? No, uh, meeting ground. How is that related to Valhalla? Well, it's ultimately where everyone meets after death. The I've never meet. heard that before. <laughs> okay. Anyway, continue. So that's why these are three of my films. I couldn't, I couldn't, and it depends. <laughs> that's the problem. You know, I could give you the top 10, 15 films that I really love, and it'll depend on the day, my mood, what uh, things are going on in my life, as to which of the films I've, I have high, rated higher or ranked higher. Because it just is a moment of time when one speaks better to me. It's one of the reasons why I have three or four books I'm in the middle of reading at any one time, because... Some books strike me on a given day as being inter- interesting, and other times they're not as interesting as other things. I still don't exactly know how you can do that, although I can do that with TV shows. I can just be in the middle of like four of them and know exactly where I am. Well, years ago your mother said I couldn't do that and it was impossible. So I said, try me. So she picks up various books around and looks at the page where it's marked and says, where did you leave off on this? And I would rattle off about where it was and what it took place. And then she put it down and she picks up another one. I hadn't looked at that one like in three months, did the exact same thing by the fourth book. She said, I, I don't get it, but fine, whatever. So before we break into these individual movies and I guess try out our tiebreaker system or however we want to try and settle the score between these three films. Do you have a prediction on which one you think will end up as our highest achiever or what, what will be the greatest of these three? When I went into this initially, I thought Apollo 13 was going to be the better because it ages better because it's not comedy. Comedy tends to, to age out and Then I watched all three films again over the last week, and I actually thought Young Frankenstein might actually win out. But then I started grading today and ranking them on my own and coming up with reasons, and I was surprised as far as me personally. I'm not going to say it per se right now. Are you going to leave us in suspense? Yes, I am. I must. I must. All right, fine. I honestly, putting the rankings together in my head and how this, I guess, would go from a category-by-category basis, I actually think Blazing Saddles will be the winner. Well, that's who came out in my mind. And there's several reasons, which I will get to as far as my rationale. All right. So to explain the rules of this for the first time, Normally, if we were going to do a tiebreaker, we would assume that it would be between two movies. The fact that we have three that tied at the exact same decimal point is outstanding. And the fact that it's three of your most favorite movies of all time is even a cherry on top of this wonderful Sunday. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to go category by category For each of these three films. And we don't have to give it a score like we're doing the Stanley rubric. We're incorporating that by just doing the categories. But we're going to rank all three films by each of the categories. We have to come to an agreement as to the ranking. So there will be some compromises here. And then we will average out what the average score across all six categories was. And come up with our final. Sound good? Yes. Legacy is up first. What do you think the order should be? I have Blazing Saddles, Apollo 13, and Young Frankenstein in that order. Blazing Saddles created a specific genre, which is parody movies. 
up until Blazing Saddles, you didn't see them. If you don't have Blazing Saddles, you don't have Young Frankenstein. You don't have High Anxiety. You don't have Airplane. You don't have Hot Shots. You don't have The Naked Gun. These are all films that were parodies that took place between 1974 when Blazing Saddles was released through until about 1990 when they kind of fell out of vogue. Now you're seeing a few of those come back in the 1990s. I know they did a parody of the Saw films. I think one of them had Dr. Phil and uh, Shaq. You know, he had to make a free throw to disarm a bomb. Or yes, something. it was a scary movie, and that was a parody of the Scream movies, at least at first. Uh, the first, I think, one or two. And they updated themselves per movie. The I think what you're referring to is uh, Scary Movie 4, where Shaq has to make a free throw in order to save himself and Dr. Phil from certain death. And he can't make a free throw. But yes, that's why it has that kind of legacy. And for why I ranked Apollo 13, I think Apollo 13 started a revival of the space program and the moon landings itself. I think it had a strong influence on the fact that we have SpaceX and renewed interest in traveling to the moon. Okay. I don't think there's any linkage between that whatsoever. I think the reason we have SpaceX or any of the other programs or Virgin Rockets or whatever new phallic item these billionaires are trying to uh, pierce the atmosphere with, and I use that intentionally, is just a big dick swinging contest. What can I spend a boatload of money on that may or may not have applications elsewhere so that we can be an interplanetary species and make everybody go, ooh, ah, isn't he a philanthropic billionaire who's spending so much money on himself? (laughs) Yeah, well. Honestly, I agree with your Blazing Saddles take as being number one. That's what I have as well. So I think that coming out of the way is not going to be the most difficult one. I think from a comedy perspective, comedy movies, I agree with pretty much everything that you said up to that point. I think you have to attribute, though, a slight connection to the fact that Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein are in the same year, because you have to look at it as the legacy of the actors that were involved, so Gene Wilder. You have to look at it as the people that were necessarily involved. You had some fairly nominal actors. Peter Boyle would go on to play the dad in Everybody Loves Raymond, like 20-some years later. And it really, as far as Mel Brooks, I know he was nominated. I don't think he won the Oscar in 69 for the producers, but I know he was nominated for Best Screenplay. This really put the final nail in Mel Brooks is a big deal, at least through the 70s, and that has to get some level of credit as well. But I don't think that happens if it's just Blazing Saddles by itself. I think the fact that he releases two big hit movies that are classic within the same year has to get almost a linkage of impact and overall legacy. Honestly, as far as Apollo 13, I think it has a pretty crappy legacy. One, it lost out to Braveheart, so I don't think that's necessarily something I can hold against the movie. But this is the movie that's supposed to be Ron Howard's best movie. And while I enjoy the movie and I think it's a good thriller and the rest of it, name me the great Ron Howard movie that we've had in the last 25 years since. I mean, A Beautiful Mind is fine, and I'm glad that he won his Oscar. But the amount of things that have been produced by Ron Howard as a director, they're mediocre films. At best, sometimes they're really crappy films, like that one book adaptation about the hillbillies. The, what was it, Hillbilly Elegy? Yes. I mean, that might be up there among some critics as the worst film ever made, or at least the most offensive film ever made. Oh, I was so worried that that, uh, Glenn Close would win an Oscar for that, after all the great performances she'd have, and then that be her Oscar. Uh, she still should have won it for uh, the wife. Yes, that was a joke. 
I, I have nothing against Olivia Coleman, but I, I still I watched her performance and then I watched Glenn Close Glenn Close should have won. I love Olivia Coleman, but that is not the movie she should have won for either. And this is the type of stuff we do all the time. That's why the Oscars is easily debatable. It creates a discussion because they get it wrong so much. But yeah. as far as the Apollo program, we've had a handful of space movies, but are any of them necessarily tied to, oh, I saw this as a kid and this was like this great movie. Did it promote Tom Hanks into a megastar? No, he'd already done a handful of movies that were bigger than this, including Forrest Gump the year before. So he was already a megastar. Did it help Kevin Bacon? I think the only person it really helped other than maybe Ron Howard could make just about anything he wanted to after this point was Ed Harris. Although Ed Harris had already starred in a a space film because he had a starring role in The Right Stuff, which was his first big film. Yeah, but he got Academy nominated for this film. Well, he should have. The other one is Gary Sinise, but then I looked. Basically, Gary Sinise didn't do too many films after this. Well, but you would say that that's bigger than him doing Lieutenant Dan? No. Yeah, I I don't think so either. Forrest Gump was a much bigger movie than this. Yes. So while I like and enjoy the film, I just don't know what overall legacy it has other than kind of an unfortunate one as an asterisk of history. Okay. So I guess yours is... uh... I went Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Apollo 13. I guess you've convinced me, and I'll go with your ranking on that. All right. So then we have impact significance. Do you want to go first or second? I went first last time, so go ahead. As far as an impact in the immediate... I probably have to say Apollo 13 first, which is the weird part about this. It was Best Picture nominated. It was on path to win. And then it kind of had a late surge by Braveheart to kind of push it over the top, over the top of this movie in, I guess, one of the closest Oscar races that they had had before the kind of Harvey Weinstein campaigning type thing really took off in the late 90s. And I know this was a hit film. Like I said, Ron Howard could pretty much make whatever he wanted after he did this film. Tom Hanks, at this point, being such a bankable movie star, went and decided to write his own film, produce it under his own banner, and then have that made. And it's a film that is really enjoyable, one that I hope that we will do at some point on this program, even though it won't rank very highly in the greatest movies of all time, but it's a fantastic little film. So if he could get that up off the ground, you know he has some gravitas. For maybe... 15, 20 years, this was the only thing I knew Bill Paxton for. So I got to say, at least from an Oscar standpoint and kind of the ripple effects for all the people that were in the cast, I kind of put this one first, at least for that maybe the first year or so, partially because Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, while they were huge movies, and... I think had some ripple effects for comedy. It seems to be outside of that initial period other than Mel Brooks. I mean, airplane is six years after both of these movies. So other than him producing his own stuff, who else was making this type of comedy? Every other one of the films that you mentioned that takes some lessons or some cues, the naked gun series, other than maybe the TV show, all those movies are from the eighties. If you're looking from an impact significance where we're talking that five-year period, other than promoting Gene Wilder and promoting Mel Brooks, I just don't see where either of them has quite the legacy. And I think if I look at it, Blazing Saddles was the bigger of the two movies. Yes. So I would probably go Apollo 13, Blazing Saddles, and then Young Frankenstein 3. Okay. We have a five-year window for impact and significance. What you're forgetting is is that Mel Brooks did two other films in very short order afterwards. He did High Anxiety, which was a parody of Hitchcock, and he did Silent Movie, which was a parody of Silent Movies. And those would not have been made but for those. So there is some significance. 
and that led into other films being started and 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 uh, greenlighted after that. I think there's a little more significance to Blazing Settles and what you're indicating, but again, it was a toss-up between Blazing Settles and Apollo 13, but I think you made good points on that as far as Apollo 13. I remember when seeing both Apollo 13 and Braveheart, and I thought Braveheart was written by a group of uh, high school kids trying to see what who could one-up each other as far as a violent scene and was not a big fan of it because I thought it just was, other than screaming and lots of violence, I didn't see why this film was so popular. But anyway, so I'm going to go, I'd originally said Blazing Saddles and Apollo 13, but I'll go with yours, which is Apollo 13, then Blazing Saddles, then Young Frankenstein. Okay. I'll just look at it from this way. If you would consider that both Ron Howard and Mel Brooks probably hit their peaks after each of these set of movies, if you consider that a wash, then you have to take it from an individual cast member level. And I just don't see anybody in the cast of either of Mel Brooks's movies really going on to do anything major beyond these films. I mean, Gene Wilder had already done Willy Wonka three years before this. And he'd done the producer. So this is pretty much the last two great movies that I can name of his. Yeah, he, he went and did a whole series of buddy films with Richard Pryor. I think three or four of them. Between uh, the late or mid-70s and uh, mid-80s. So his career really didn't go very far after that. And so from that standpoint, I just look at that from both an awards perspective, a critical perspective, and from, you know, just an impact of all the people involved as just being the higher of the two in that five-year period, even though I almost have it in reverse order for the legacy. Yeah, okay. All right, so because this is an unusual episode, we'll take a quick break right here, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, we are revisiting one of the great Quentin Tarantino films of the 21st century in Inglorious Bastards, written and directed by Tarantino, starring Brad Pitt, Christoph Waltz, and Melanie Laurent. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we have next up Novelty. Blazing Saddles is by far the most novel of the three. I mean, it started an entire genre. Nothing else had been done like it. Yes, it was set in a Western setting, which was highly prevalent in the 50s, 60s, and uh, was starting to wind down in the 70s. But it was at that point when it was starting to wind down, which made it an opportune time to parody the Western. I think to some extent, the novelty of this is that Anything that was left of the Western was kind of killed off by Blazing Saddles at that point in time. So I think it had a big impact by its creativity and showing the absurdity of certain aspects and certain platitudes of of the Western genre. Number two, this one was much more difficult. Young Frankenstein had a lot of subtle humor, a lot of double entente. There was a lot of funny lines that kind of started a more intelligent type comedy for the most part. Although I don't think that uh, intelligence is necessarily what you would call putting on the Ritz. The rest of it was pretty, pretty significant. So I had a hard time between that and Apollo 13 because there were other space films, 2001, The Right Stuff. But I don't think this had... This film was unique and novel in that it told a real story from a a point of view of being kind of behind the scenes, what took place, how it was done. It wasn't just the astronauts, but it was the entire NASA program and how they acted in order to save the crew and what the crew had to go through and what they had to do themselves. The combination makes it more unique. So in 
speaking or thinking of those two, Young Frankenstein and Apollo 13, I went with Apollo 13 second, Young Frankenstein third. So we're in agreement again on the number one overall. I think Blazing Saddles by far is the most novel of the three because there really isn't anything like it. Even to now, name me the other parody Western. I guess there's one that comes to mind. A Million Ways to Die in the West, the um, Seth MacFarlane comedy from a few years ago after he did Ted and had so much juice. Well, there is one other one. And most people will not think about it, but it starred Divine. It was Lust in the Dust. Divine was a uh, 300 and some pound uh, transvestite actor, actress, who was very popular in the late 70s, early 80s. Until, uh, interestingly, and not without surprise, due to excessive eating and drug use, had a heart attack and died. Okay. There, there for your strange reference of the week. Divine had been the one that had done Hairspray on Broadway. Obviously, these other films are not very much recognized and not films that a lot of people have seen. As far as a classic Western parody, this is pretty much the quintessential and nobody else has really attempted one since. I think that's saying something. When you hit the mark so squarely that nobody else seems like or feels like they can come anywhere near you, to me that just screams novelty. Now, I think where the debate lies is in the other two films. To me, Apollo 13, while it's very well done, feels derivative. And not just from a space film and not from... But it feels kind of a nonfiction thriller event that we've adapted and we kind of put through the same paces as everything else. There are some great moments in the film. I still think that four minutes that they have at the end of the film where you don't know whether they survived or not, even though you probably do know the story that they did survive, you're still gripped on the edge of your seat. That's just wonderful filmmaking. I mean, that might be the best four minutes of Ron Howard's career. But the rest of it seems kind of formulaic. Ron Howard, to me, feels like a director who is pretty consistent. He's never going to make the material better or worse. He's just going to make the material. And if the material's really good, he can make a solid movie. And when the material's really bad, he's going to make a really bad movie. He doesn't necessarily elevate or detract from anything he's doing. He is just kind of the replacement-level director. And so nothing about this, to me, screams novel. It just screams, yeah, that was a really good movie. Whereas Young Frankenstein, even though it's coming on the back of Blazing Saddles, it was pretty much made in about the same time frame. I mean, to be within a year of each other, you don't have a lot of production time that you're counting on. And having gone back after watching this, because I hadn't ever watched the original Frankenstein, it was interesting to me how many things were almost like a beat-for-beat recreation of the original movie, but just with a bunch of jokes thrown in. So I think to be able to take this concept of the monster movie, update it, and make it funny, to me that feels much more novel. (sighs) I've given in on two of these. Are you saying you want me to give in on this one? Well, I'm having a hard time giving in on a third one. I understand your point, and the concept of Marty Feldman playing Igor for comedy was... Igor. Igor. Was uh, wonderful, and I'd forgotten how great Marty Feldman was. What hump? It's too bad he passed, And for the audience, I just happened to do some research realizing how Marty Fulman passed, I think, at age 41. According to what I was reading, the time that he started doing Young Frankenstein until the time he died about five or six years later, he was smoking five to six packs of cigarettes a day and was consuming up to three to four gallons of caffeinated coffee. (laughs) And he had a heart attack. (laughs) Hard to believe. 
But anyway, the novelty aspect. <sighs> All right, I'll give in again because I do understand your points. Well, now everybody's just going to be expecting that. Well, let's not even listen to Dana's list. We're just going to give give yeah. it to Tom. Uh, at, at this point, I'm holding fast on my remaining two because I feel strongly about those. That's fine. I I might just turn over rewatchability to you. I have my own personal favorites as to how I rank them in watching it. Pretty much, I know what number one is, and then the other two could go in any order to me. But we'll we'll see how it I guess turns out. We haven't been too far off in these rankings, although there are only three movies at a time, so I don't know how far we would expect to be off. But, uh, all right. Classicness. Go ahead. Apollo 13. I mean, there's nothing in here that's really a problem. I mean, the last on the list is obviously Blazing Saddle, simply because of the language and the subject matter. Now I understand it's a parody and what was supposed to be done was to show the humor of the stupidity involving racism, but there's no way that film could be made with that script today. It just would be too insensitive at this point in time. Now young Frankenstein is not nearly as bad, but there are two things or two aspects of this that I have a problem with as far as classicness. Number one, it seems to poke a lot of fun of blind people with the uh, Gene Hackman character. And I know that the book calls for a blind person, but the jokes about him being unable to ladle soup and to light Peter Boyle's thumb on fire, etc. It, it, there's a certain aspect of that that it's a little offensive. Despite being one of your favorite scenes in the movie. Oh, I love it. It's just hilarious. But it's not quite as bad as when when Leslie Nielsen did Mr. Magoo, which drew a lot of criticism for poking fun of people with sight impairments. Let alone Robin Williams doing Popeye. Oh, God. (laughs) Robert Altman needed to be crucified for making that film. It is so bad. Uh, I'm not a big Altman fan to begin with, so. Oh, it is so bad. I mean, I have never seen such a big hunk of crap in my life. I mean, it's a film where I'm going throughout the entire film going. Uh, anyway, going going back. The other rat, the other one is is that is there a problem with the fact that you know you basically give up one head for the other? You. You tie intelligence with a big schlong. And it it kind of, I found it a little off-putting for that reason. Reductive? Yeah, I thought it kind of, intelligence and being sexually. There's a lot of sexual objectifying within the film. Correct. And so that's where I had a problem with it. So I don't think it's quite as classic. So Apollo 13, there's nothing really wrong with it. Now, admittedly, the cast was about as lily white as you could get, but it's historically based, and I don't know how many African Americans were at NASA, and there were none in the space program for a number of years. None of that seems to like make any major difference to me whatsoever, whether there's diversification within these films of sorts. I mean, you could give extra credit for being a black hero in Blazing Saddles, but a lot of that's undone by the massive amounts of racial slurs and racial jokes. Yeah. And while they're funny, I'll just tell you how I looked at it. Apollo 13 is the least offensive of these three films. (laughs) Yes. And then I, I looked at it, okay, which of these two Mel Brooks movies would be the quickest to be canceled today? And it's Blazing Saddles. So I agree with your list. Oh, good. Thank you. So we'll take another quick break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, just letting everyone know that we hit our 100th country on the list this week. Thank you, Jamaica, for being our 100th different country we've had a listener in. It's very exciting. I think there are 208 
nationalities in the entire world. So to be almost halfway so far with this very small podcast is kind of an amazing achievement for us. And we thank everybody very much for listening for these four, well, I guess three complete years going into our fourth year. And we hope you continue to listen to us as we're planning on being here for quite a while. All right, Dad, I think, unfortunately, this is always the period of the year where we seem to lose the most people around this kind of post-holiday period. There's a few that kind of trickle in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but really, post-Christmas and New Year's, we have a lot of people who seem to pass away, and this year seems to be no exception, as while we were gone, I think we have at least a double-digit list of people that have connection to the arts and entertainment that we have to recognize. Yes. Pele, 82, was a Brazilian footballer, three-time world champion, and was an actor one of the films we reviewed, uh, Victory. Yes, he's probably up until maybe the last World Cup game where Lionel Messi finally won the World Cup for Argentina. It was Pele or it was Diego Maradona, widely considered as the greatest footballer of all time. I think that by a modern standpoint, Lionel Messi might have surpassed one of those or both, but it's hard to really quantify the impact that he had on the footballing world while he was in his prime in the late 50s to the early 70s. And then what he did to kind of jumpstart, I guess, soccer in the culture of America, even though it still took us another 20 years to really kind of catch up. Having been able or been privileged enough to travel to Brazil and uh, Rio de Janeiro, it's a question whether the shrine, which is the football field that uh, Pele started as as a child, or the Cristo, is the bigger monument. Uh, we also lost a couple of, or two gangster rappers, or two rappers, I guess. Big Scar, 22, and Gangsta Boo, 43. British actor Ronan uh, Vibert had been in Saving Mr. Banks, The Pianist, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and The Snowman. Uh, Stephen Graff, British actor, was in Blake 7, Casanova, and Nicholas and Alexandra. He was also a mainstay on EastEnders, which I think has been mentioned more times than not on this show, is it seems like just about every week we're recognizing somebody that had a role on that program. Dax Tahira, 37, as an American television executive, uh, was involved in ABC's This Week. With George Stephanopoulos. Edie Lando, 95, was an American film and television producer. She did Hopscotch, The Chosen, Christmas Wife. Rita Walter, 71, American actress, was in The Secret Storm, but is best known for a long-running character on As the World Turns. James D. Brubaker, 85, an American film producer. He was involved in Rocky, The uh, Right Stuff, Gia, and Bruce Almighty. Robert Dowling, 83, American magazine publisher, creator and publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. Fred White, 67, American Hall of Fame drummer, was with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Frank Galati, 79, American theater director, did The Grapes of Wrath and Ragtime, as well as an Oscar-nominated screenwriter for The Accidental Tourist, and won a Tony in 1990. The theater he was the director of was the Steppenwolf Theater. He was one of the three who created it, one of which was someone we mentioned earlier today, Gary Sinise. Two of the actors that he recruited for their first group at the Steppenwolf Theater was one John Melkovic and one Lori Metcalf. Anita Pointer, singer with the Pointer Sisters, passed. She was 74. And then an entity in journalism, television, movies, comedy, Barbara Walters, 93, uh, was on the Today Show 2020, talk, ho- or talk show host and creator of The View. Um, she did cameos and umpteen things um, and is well-known and was well-parodied multiple times in film and on television. She once made a comment or an appearance on Saturday Night Live 
where they had a continuous effort to parody her throughout her career. An absolute institution in journalism and TV hosting, I think for what, maybe 30 years, she was the go-to interviewer for everybody that needed that sit-down interview? She got her first big recognition because she happened to be one of the reporters that happened to be in the studio on November 22nd, 1963 at WNBC in New York. And they sent her out onto the streets to interview people and to see the public reaction to John Kennedy's assassination. And her report was picked up then and broadcasted nationally. And that kind of propelled her into a more national spotlight, much as it did Dan Rather, who covered the assassination from Dallas for CBS News. So there were lots of implications there out of that tragic event. And so we recognize all of these people here for their various contributions, musically, television, film, entertainment in general, journalism, etc., with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, cutting back to the list, we left off at rewatchability, and I'll just turn this over to you. Having watched all three films, maybe, again, it's just this point in time in my life and what I enjoy and what I don't and where I am, but it's Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Apollo 13. If any of these three films are on, and I'm flipping around the station, I will watch them. So that's not the key. It's whether I'll go out of my way. And I find that whether you are there or not, about every nine months, I will rewatch Blazing Saddles. Because sometimes I just need to have a laugh. I just need to escape reality and enjoy just time to, I don't know, enjoy the absurd. And what surprises me is I don't rewatch Young Frankenstein as much. But every time I rewatch it, I find something that I missed as far as a joke or a look or an angle of the shot that I didn't see or think about why it was done the way it was. And so I find something fascinating about it. Apollo 13 was just such a solid movie, but there's nothing in it for me that says, oh, I have to rewatch this. So I was going to be fine as long as Blazing Saddles was number one, so I will adopt your list. Thank you. Blazing Saddles is the only one of these that I go back and rewatch regularly. Not that I couldn't watch Young Frankenstein, it's just not the film that tickles me quite like Blazing Saddles. And while I've seen Apollo 13, it just doesn't have the same rewatchability to me that maybe it does to you, where I've seen you flipping through channels and find it on, and therefore you just sit and watch an hour of it. It's never quite appealed to me that way. So I could have accepted Young Frankenstein or Apollo 13 in any order, but I had this in the exact same order, so I'll just adopt your list. Okay. So that takes us to audience score. So for this one, Apollo 13 had an 87% for Rotten Tomatoes and an 84% for Google users for an 85.5%. Blazing Saddles had a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and an 83% on Google for an 87. And Young Frankenstein had a 92 on Rotten Tomatoes and a 93 among Google users for a 92.5. So it would end up being Young Frankenstein in the first category it will win, Blazing Saddles, and then Apollo 13. All right, so to recap the categories, for Legacy Rankings, we had Blazing Saddles 1, Young Frankenstein 2, Apollo 13 3. For impact significance, we had Apollo 13 1, Blazing Saddles 2, Young Frankenstein 3. Novelty rankings, we had Blazing Saddles 1, Young Frankenstein 2, Apollo 13 3. Classicness rankings, we had Apollo 13 1, Young Frankenstein 2, and Blazing Saddles 3. Rewatchability, we had Blazing Saddles 1, Young Frankenstein 2, and Apollo 13 3. Audience score, We had Young Frankenstein number one, 
Blazing Saddles, number two, and Apollo 13, number three. Our final ranking scores, then, are Blazing Saddles at number one with a 1.66 repeating ranking average, Young Frankenstein with a two ranking average, and Apollo 13 with a 2.33 repeating ranking average. So out of these three films, Blazing Saddles is the greatest. Satisfied? Yes, I am. Final thoughts, then, for the week. Looking forward to the new season, and I won't get into it, but the last year or so, for me personally, has been kind of a difficult year for multiple reasons. I think I've turned a page and or crossed over the Rubicon, whatever metaphor you'd like to uh, use. Um, and I'm looking forward to the new year, both from the podcast, but personally and professionally. And uh, I'm anxious to get going on 2023. Um, I do know that you had recommendations on what to watch. Uh, I'm also going to make one. You and I went and saw Babylon. I would recommend it, but you have to come into it with a certain understanding that you have to be somebody that um, loves movies to really appreciate it. And there are flaws in the film, but there were some moments in that film where it was that you uh, had uh, very deep guttural laughing going on because there were periods this film was extremely funny. That's not a film that I would necessarily recommend to the audience at large. And this is where you and I are starting to become more critics than we are Joe Popcorn, because I just don't think that that appeals to the average person that is going to see a action film or a superhero flick or something that's the person that's going to go see Avatar The Way of Water is going to have a lot better time with that than they are with Babylon, which is a very complicated, dense film that's full of metaphors. And even Damien Chazelle, who you and I both love as a director, has a lot of things in there that he says are like a poison pen of what he thinks of Hollywood and the industry and how it chews up and spits out just about everybody that works in it. And it's really kind of harping, even though it's set in a period, you know, almost 100 years ago, it has a lot of things that it's trying to say about modern Hollywood and the state of movies that is somewhat cynical. And so I just don't think that a movie that starts out with an elephant shitting on somebody is going to be appealable to the masses. Well, I'm coming at it with thinking of the fact that most people are, who are going to be listening to our podcast have an appreciation of movies, so they're not necessarily Joe Lunchbox. Maybe you're right. I I guess maybe it's a lack of understanding of where our audience is. I guess I'm used to talking to people like Mom, and that's why I told her not to watch the film. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine she would have liked it because her visceral reaction to everything. She would have been gagging. Yes. Everything anywhere all at once was uh, difficult. It was difficult to watch sitting there with her because of her constant complaining about the film and, and uh, comments. Um, I stopped it three or four times and told her that she didn't have to continue to watch it if she didn't want. And she continues to rag on the film, even though it's a, film that's much more broadly appealing than this film. It's just not one that I would necessarily tell anybody, oh yeah, you're going to have a really good time seeing this. Yes. I had a really good time seeing it with you yes. discussing it afterwards, mm -hmm. but I don't think the average person wants to go into a heroin and coke infused meta commentary uh, just about any day of the week. I just have this sneaking feeling that though that Tobey Maguire is going to get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, I thought that was one of the weirdest parts of the film. Well, of course it was. But that's the kind of thing that Hollywood just loves. I just had this feeling he's going to get a nomination. I really hope not. Uh, nah, I, there are a lot better supporting roles this year. Oh, I know, but uh, yeah. Like Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans, I think, is a more likely candidate than Tobey Maguire. Mm-hmm. 
Also, the fact that uh, this movie, I think they're suggesting Diego Calva as a Best Supporting Actor nominee, even though the movie's primarily told through his perspective. This is the the type of awards-like manipulation that I just can't stand. But anyway, (laughs) I digress. If I'm going to recommend a movie, though, and I feel kind of silly in recommending it at this point, and maybe I've already recommended it before, but... The fact that I think it's the third highest watched movie in the history of Netflix so far. I might be just preaching to the choir, but I really love Glass Onion. I've seen it four times now. And every time I pick out something new or something small or just the the little intricacies that Ryan Johnson has done with the film, I just find it to be a really good time that I can still, despite knowing the plot, find things to enjoy and pick out and watch and have a good time with. I'm not one of the critics who just picks it apart and whatever else. I just had a good time in the theater watching it. I had a good time watching it at home by myself. I had a good time watching it over our Christmas. I just enjoy the film. I'm looking forward to whenever they grace us with a third one. And I keep hoping that they'll put out five or six more of these because I just don't see anybody else really doing this unless you count the Poirot films that uh, that Kenneth Branagh is putting out. Yes. Which I don't. I think those are very different films because they're not really comedic. To me, Knives Out is to the mystery genre what Scream was in 1995 to the horror genre. I, I love the film too, and I would highly recommend it. I knew what your recommendation was going to be, so I didn't want to undercut you but i i really enjoyed it i thought it was well done i i know it's not you know necessarily one of the best films of the year as far as critical review but i would love to see it nominated simply because it's a film that was very well done and is popular well given that the other one supposedly was going to make it in 2019 had they had to have a 10th film I really don't see how this one, and I know it's been a slightly mixed bag, but for the most part, people have enjoyed it. Even, I think, A.O. Scott said he enjoyed it, so take that for what it's worth. Wow. But, yeah, I know. I think because it's a fantastically good time, it's going to sneak in there as one of the, like, blockbuster half of movies that are going to get into the best picture race along with Top Gun and Avatar and maybe even a Black Panther. And then there will be all the really tiny, small films that nobody went to see that are the art house things like Tar and Banshees of Inishirin and the Fablemans that will be tabbed to potentially win best picture. But right now it seems like the theme of this year is a confluence between the two. The film that is both art house and has more to say, but also was broadly appealing and was somewhat of a blockbuster, I think is the current favorite for Best Picture. And that was the movie that mom hates the most. Everything, everywhere, all at once. By the way, I can just picture, you know, a, a five or six year old A.O. Scott just ripping all over his mother over Christmas dinner. This ham is too dry. Yeah. So anyway, it's great to be back with everyone. We have enjoyed three years together, and we have a lot of things planned for this year. We have the fifth appearance by at least one guest coming up on the show in the next couple of months. We will have, I think, by the time the season's done, Mom's like 10th appearance, so we'll have to get something more than a hat. Maybe she'll earn like a sweater vest. A bandana. (laughs) A bandana? Yes. Because something that she would just like, you expect me to wear this? I mean, the hat alone is going to be bad. You know, the only time you'll ever get her to wear that is when she's at the Y working out. Well, at that point, just give her a headband. (laughs) So she can be Jared Bayless? No, so she could be Jackie Moon. Yeah. Her little perm fro sticking out through the top of the headband. Yes. Uh, yeah. I have to get the hats made up. Well, anyway, and we have a bunch of movies that we're just dying to cover with the rest of you. And uh, I'm going to be teasing those as I actually divvy up my final lines of each episode. So 
as soon as we hit a particular movie, I will change it the next week because I want to drop these hints as to movies that are coming up on the show. So with that, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Next week, we are revisiting one of the great Quentin Tarantino films of the 21st century in Inglorious Bastards, written and directed by Tarantino, starring Brad Pitt, Christoph Waltz, and Melanie Laurent. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.